we've been talking about tiny houses. I mean, I'm tired of saying tiny house already. I was tired of saying tiny house a while ago, but that's what we called the series, so I'm going to have to keep saying it. <laughs> but, but there's a, a, a big trend, right? Tiny houses are a big deal. Sounds weird. Tiny houses are a big, big deal. And, you know, what a tiny, the, the draw to the tiny house is, one of, the, one of the big draws is that most of them are mobile, right? You can take them and, and go to whoever's yard you want to camp out in until they kick you out, right? And you just keep moving around and, and just go wherever and you take your house with you. And what we've been looking at is, is God's tiny house, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And what that tabernacle was all about was it was the place that God was planning to dwell. His presence was going to dwell in this tabernacle, and he was going to travel with the Israelites as they made their way through the, the wilderness and on their way to the promised land. All right, And so what we've been seeing is some of the details of how that structure was built, some of the materials it was built out of, and, and what all of that signifies uh, to us personally today. Right, So this, this weird traveling tent thing, that God had ordered the Israelites to build several thousand years ago still has personal application to us, right? It, when you read through it, it's just a lot of details, and there's all these hooks, and there's tashes, and there's loops, and there's all this stuff. We we're like, what? what? Why do we have to? Why is God spending chapter after chapter after chapter on the details of this this tabernacle? Well, it's because it has incredible significance, right? And so what we saw last week. Uh, we've got a little bit of review on your sheet because several people were out of town. It was a crazy week last week. So we've got some review. I don't often take a whole lot of time for this, so we'll go fast. Um, I think there's a picture of what the tabernacle... Okay, so this is a picture we've been going to. What we saw last week, we looked at the outer court. So basically not, not outside of that fence, but the outer court is outside of the tabernacle itself. So it's the, everything inside of the fenced-in area there. And what we see... And on your sheet is the outer court is, is a representation to us of reconciliation, right? So big fancy word just means we've been reconciled to God. We've been made right. You know, the, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We need to be reconciled with God, all right? And the outer wall we saw was, was made of white, fine linen, and it was a picture of righteousness, right? It stood out different from everything else around it. It was holy. It was, it was righteous. The gate we saw last week was, the, the important thing about the gate was there was only one way in. Right? And some of these things are on your notes. There's only one way in. And, and what we saw was, just like there's only one way into the tabernacle where the presence of God is, Christ told us in John 14, 6, that he said, I am the way, the one way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He also referred to himself as the door. Right? There's only one door, there's only one gate, there's only one way into God. And that's, that's the exact same thing we see in the, in the picture of the tabernacle. There's only one way to get in where the presence of God is at. You've got to go through the gate. All right? And the first thing you see as soon as you open the, that gate, you pull those curtains back, you see a brazen altar. And an altar was something that they did sacrifices on. And so it was, it was a burning sacrifice. The fact that it was made... Uh, it says that it was brazen, it was, it was bronze or a brass, was a picture of judgment. Fire is also a picture of judgment in the Old Testament, or, or all through Scripture, really. All right, and so there's a fancy word, propitiation. 
big P word. Basically what that means, we, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, a sacrifice had to be made. If you sacrifice your life for yourself, it's not good enough, right? Because you're a sinner. Jesus Christ became our propitiation. He became the payment for our sins. So the first thing you see going through the one way into the tabernacle, you see judgment because your sins have to be dealt with if you're going to get to God, Amen. right? He's not saying, hey, you got to do away with all your sins before you ever approach God. He's saying, no, you've got to go through Christ if you're going to get to God. You've got to go through the propitiation. You've got to go through the one way that God provided for you to deal with your sins once and for all. Right? That's, the only, that's, that's what you see at the very beginning of the court. And then the next thing that we see, once we've had our sins dealt with, once we're inside this court, the only other piece of furniture is this thing called a brazen laver. Right? It's also a picture of judgment, and it's, it's as we judge our walk as we go. Right, So the, the priest would walk around, he would do the sacrifice, he would get his feet dirty because the floor is dirt, right? and he would have blood on his hands from the sacrifices, and he had to continually wash. So the brazen laver was all about purification, right? It's, it's, it's purifying your walk. It's, it's growing in your walk with Christ. It's becoming more like him. It's a process of purification. And, and we all experience that as we walk with the Lord, all right? And so if you remember, the, the bottom portion of, of the laver was made of, of mirror, mirrored surface. And so, you know, what's, what's the Bible say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do you know you're a sinner? Because the Bible told you, right? You looked in the mirror of God's word and he said, hey, there's sin here. Let's clean that up. I'll forgive you as, as, as often as you need it. Let's, let's purify your life, all right? And I'm gonna read through this, this next list. We're not gonna go and read all of these passages, but this is just a, a, a little quick breakdown of some of the details of the next section, which is called the holy place. Um, Exodus 26, it details, uh, in chapter, uh, or verse one through 13, details the curtains and all of the, the things that were hanging on the inside of the tabernacle. This is the actual tent inside the fenced-in area. Uh, verse 14 talks about the outer covering. There were animal skins hanging on the outside of all of the curtains. Uh, Exodus 26, 15 through 29 talks about the framing and what kind of wood it's made out of and the posts and everything like that. The veil is the next thing that we see there in, in Exodus 26. We'll get into that in, in a couple weeks. Exodus 25, a chapter beforehand, we see another thing we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at the structure and the materials of, of the, the actual tent. We're also going to look at the candlestick. And then Exodus 25, uh, verses 23 through 30, talks about the table of showbread. And Exodus 30, we see the altar of incense. And we're going to see those two pieces of furniture next week. We just don't have time to, to get into all of the pictures. So the outer court we saw last week is all about reconciliation. The holy place is all about a relationship, right? We've got to go through Christ. He's got to wash our sins away completely. We've got to purify our lives, but that's not the end of it. He's not interested in you just continually walking in the dirt and washing it off. He wants a relationship, right? The, the Israelites were brought out of bondage for what? Just to not be slaves anymore? No, they were brought out of bondage so that God could take them into 
the land of promise. But there was a process of walking together in order to get there. God didn't just want to get them out of slavery, and he didn't just want to give them wonderful things. He wanted to dwell with them. He wanted a relationship with them. He wanted them to grow in knowledge of him, and he wanted to be able to walk and commune with them constantly. Right? He wants a relationship. He's always wanted a relationship with his creation. He takes us out of bondage to sin so that we can walk with him in peace towards victory. That's what he's always desired. That's what he did with Israel physically. That's what he wants to do with us spiritually and and physically as well. He wants you to get victory in your life. He doesn't want you to stop in the outer court is the point. So over the next two weeks, we're gonna look at a relationship with Christ that's pictured for us in this tabernacle. Before we get into the details, I I do wanna pray again and, and just... Man, as I'm praying, ask the Lord to, to open your eyes. Open, the, the Bible says, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Out of the law. There's incredible truth here that applies to us. So let's, let's ask the Lord to, to teach us some things. Lord, we, we are humbled that these incredible details that, you know, as we're passing through, uh, they can just come, they can come across really boring. They can come across as just piles and piles of information. But you, in your wisdom and foresight, knew that all of this stuff had deep and, and impactful meaning. And, and we're, we're just asking to see some of it tonight. Uh, we do want you to open our eyes. We do want to behold wondrous things. And we want to pursue that relationship that we know that you're pursuing. Uh, help us to see how to do that. Help us to see you in these pictures. Uh, help us to understand practically Uh, what we need to do in our own individual lives. Uh, We love you, and we're asking for your guidance as always. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, so that brings us to point number one. If this is all about a relationship, we need to see the person we have the relationship with. And it's interesting, I've got in parentheses there, the tabernacle, tabernacle, can't say that, materials, all right, so the person we have a relationship with, the person we're looking to have this relationship with, is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. And the materials that the tabernacle is made out of, again, just like the outer wall and the outer fence or the gate, they point directly to Jesus Christ, again. Every bit of it points directly to him. Uh, so we're going to go through just, just four or five of these real quick, and there's, a, there's more there's more to it than what we have time to get into, but letter A, the boards and the pillars are made of something called sheetum wood. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that sounds better to me. <laughs> we're, just going, we're just going with that, okay? I feel like I need to go back out to the laver and wash if I say it the other way, so I just, we're, just, we're just going with this. Sheetum. <sighs> I better move on. This is... We'll just call it an acacia tree because that's what everybody calls it today. And there's all different variations of acacia trees. And this specific one in that region has a special you know, characteristic. It's impervious to bugs. Bugs can't eat into it like, it, like all other trees that, that we know of, pretty much. You could say it's incorruptible. Right? 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. 
See, we're born again by the incorruptible Word of God, and Jesus Christ is the incarnate, incorruptible Word of God, isn't he? Right? He, he was without blemish. He was without sin. He, he became sin for us, but he was the perfect sacrifice. The, the boards and the pillars and the structure points to Jesus. Secondly, the pillars here, you know, the pillars on the outside were just, you know, just stuck in the ground and, and tethered to the ground and, and draped with the, the fine linens. These pillars are, are covered in gold, pure gold. The, the instruments and the, the furniture and everything that's inside of the holy place and the holy of all, the holiest of all, is all covered in gold or made completely of pure gold. And we've seen in previous weeks that the gold represents purity and it represents royalty. 1 Timothy 6.15 says, Which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, the outer court was all about judgment. The, the inside, once you get inside, it's all about royalty. It's all about the King of kings and everything points to the king on the throne. The third thing we see is the, the, the inside was, was all of these fine linens, and we'll look at that next, but the outside was covered in ram skins and badger skins, and I think there was some, some goat skins and goat hair as well mixed in there. So it was pretty unattractive, right? It was, it was ram skins dyed red, even. Uh, if, we see, if we look in Exodus chapter 26, verse 14, it says, Thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ramskins dyed red and a covering above of badger skins. All right, so I think, you know, you guys are good students of the Bible. You can see the picture here. The ramskins dyed red. I wonder what that means. Genesis 22 is a story about Abraham who's got his one and only son that was promised to him. He, he had this son in his old age. It was impossible. But like we sang, you know, nothing is impossible for God. And, and Abraham has this son in his old age. 100 years old, and God has the nerve to ask him to, to offer his son back as a sacrifice. And Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain and says, hey, we're going to go sacrifice. Um, you come with me, grab the wood. And in verse 8, we pick up, and it says, Abraham said, my son, or you know, Isaac's saying, where's, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? In verse 8, Abraham says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Amen. He could have worded that any way he wanted, right? He could have said, God will give us a lamb when we get to the top. God will, you know, we'll, we'll find one. No, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went, both of them, verse 9, and they came to the place where God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram in a thicket, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. It was interesting that there was a ram with a crown of thorns sitting right off to the side. 
a ram caught in a thicket of, by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. It was ram skins dyed red because Christ is the sacrifice. The outer ugly shell of this building is ramskins dyed red because that's what Christ put on for us. He came and put on human flesh and looked like everybody else. He looked bland. He looked normal. It's interesting. On the top of that, it says that he, they were instructed to put badger skins. All right? and so these would, would have looked black, um, unattractive. <clears throat> and, and this is one of those weird things to where Bible scholars, quote-unquote, the world around, who are making new versions of the Bible all the time, would say, well, badgers, badger is actually an incorrect translation, and the King James Bible got it wrong. I was like, oh, I didn't know there was a big controversy over badger skins until I started reading it, into this. And so uh, some of the Bibles will translate this seal skins, because, you know, badger, seal, it's kind of the same thing, right? The reason they get to this is they go to Ezekiel chapter 16, another place where the word badger skins is used. Uh, Ezekiel 16.10 says, I clothed thee with broidered work and shod thee with badger skin. So shod is like, you know, you shod a horse with shoes. Uh, in, in the New Testament, our, our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, right? So shod with badger skins, what, what Bible scholars and, you know, people smarter than the rest of us have figured out is that historically in this area, they used seal skins for shoes. So they must have interpreted things wrong. So they, they put seal skins in there because they know better than, than the translators, I guess. And they would say, you know, there were no badgers in that area. There were badgers in Egypt, but they couldn't have possibly taken badger skins with them several weeks before. It's not possible. And, and, you know, we've, we've been in that area. We know there weren't badger skins 3,000 years ago either. I mean, th they know all these things. They know better than God. And so other translators have, a, they've been a little bit more sincere, a little bit more honest, and they said, well, look, it can't be badger skins because if you go to Leviticus 11, God says badgers fall into the, the category of unclean animals. Right? If you, if you guys, I was like, oh, well, that's probably true. So I went and looked it up. The whole chapter, Leviticus 11, it begins with the, the clean animals they're allowed to eat, the unclean animals they're not allowed to eat, and God says, don't even touch them. Don't even touch those unclean animals. And then he goes on you know, a, a list of birds that can be eaten and should not be eaten because of being clean and unclean. And then he goes into a list of fish, and the fish have to have scales and fins. So if you're, if you're using seal skins, you're still out. So that, that one doesn't count, you know? And, and then it gets into this in verse 27 and 28, and it says, Whatsoever goeth upon paws, badgers go upon paws, among all manner of beasts that go on all four. They go on all four paws. This is where they fall. Those are un unclean unto you. So, man, they're on to something, right? There's got to be some sort of contradiction here, unless you read the rest of the passage. He says, whoso toucheth their, car touches their carcass shall be unclean forever, banished from the camp. No, until even, until tonight. Well, that's interesting. 
He says, and he that beareth the carcass of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the even. They are unclean unto you. So God says, hey, make the top, the roof, the top covering out of badger skins. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to touch an unclean animal. If you touch an unclean animal, wash yourself. He's made a provision. There's no controversy. There's no contradiction here. Use badger skins. So why would God use badger skins? and not goat skins, as those who would say, you can't use an unclean animal because they're not allowed to touch them. They would just translate that goat skins. They would say goat skins and ram skins because you're allowed to touch the goat. I have a theory. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 and 34 says, when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You see, this is the story. This is the part where Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is hanging on the cross, and the whole world at noon goes dark. Why is that? At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, when God looks down from heaven, what does he see? He sees the skins of an unclean animal covered in sin. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you change it from a badger, you mess up God's picture. If you change it to anything you think you know better than God, you mess up his picture. And what God saw and what gives you and I the opportunity to have that relationship in the first place is that Jesus became unclean for us. So yes, priest, touch the unclean animal and then go wash yourself. There's a picture. We don't want to mess it up. The inside, though, the outside was ugly. The outside was dead animal skins. The outside was dark and drab. The inside was made of fine linen and tapestry, just like the gate that we saw last week. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, talks about when Jesus took some disciples with him up on the mountain. It says, uh, verse 2 says, He bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. He set them apart and, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias take, talking with him. And Peter, you know, in his zeal, he says, man, we should, we should make tabernacles for everybody. Everybody gets tabernacle. This is a celebration. This is incredible. Right? While he yet spake, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they had the only reaction you're ever going to have in the presence of God. They fell on their face, and they were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And after the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was risen from the dead, later on, Peter writes a letter, Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 16 and 7, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power 
and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we're eyewitnesses of what? His majesty. You know what's on the inside? It's beautiful. It's majesty. It's glory. He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What's on the inside is beautiful. It's tapestry. It's, it's, the, it's the blue and the purple and the, uh, the red and the white all woven together, and there's, there's pictures of angels all over the place. There's pictures of angels all over the place because Isaiah chapter 6 tells us, In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood seraphims, that's angels. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What's on the inside is glory. What's on the inside is majesty. What's on the inside is, is angels worshiping the king of kings. Revelation 4.8, the four beasts, beasts had each of them six wings about him and were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. I think we just sang about that. On the inside is beauty. On the inside is majesty. On the outside is just the shell that everybody saw. And then many of them missed. The priest would step through the entrance and it would take a moment for his eyes to adjust. Because layers and layers of animal skins and furs and layers of linens would have blocked out the entire light coming in from the outside. The tabernacle would have been completely dark, except for to the left of the priest as he entered, there was a candlestick. And again, we have the reference above, if you want to look up the details of this candlestick. It's, I can't remember the amount of talents of weight, but it would, would, be, it would be like the equivalent of 75 pounds of pure gold. And it says it was beaten work. God gave these men, special abilities to create this candlestick out of one chunk of gold. I, it would have had to have been, you know, a spiritual gift <laughs> for the time. It's incredible. 75 pounds this thing probably weighed, and if, if we were to, to try to reproduce it today, just the cost of the, the gold alone would be $1,250,000 just for the chunk of gold. The candlestick was the only light source within the holy place. And remember, we're talking about relationship here, relationship with the Lord. So the second point is the power behind the relationship. Right, the, the candlestick, the light source, we used to call the electric company the power company, right? The, the, the light company was the power company. This is where the power comes from. And... We're going to get to the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. That's going to be the main picture here. But there are other pictures that are connected to this candlestick. We're going to do three of those real quick here, just so that you, know, you can see this is, this is a pretty incredible uh, instrument that God has going on here. The, one of the first pictures, uh, letter A, is Christ. Right, John 
chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, because this is a source of light, this is an obvious picture of Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light. John wasn't the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Notice each time we're saying light, it's capital L. It's talking about Christ. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. When Christ said he was leaving to go to heaven, it was now the disciples' job to be the light of the world, right? It's now our job to be lights to the world, right? The the moon is this incredible picture in the sky each night. The moon has no light source of its own. It only reflects the light from the sun. That's our job. That's us, the individual Christian, let her be. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. That anointing is connected with oil, which is connected with the Spirit of God. It's being appointed to shine the light to this world. Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. These are dark times. It's our good works that ought to be the candlestick that we put on top of the hill, right? We, we should be that city on the hill shining for people to see. First John 1, 5 through 5-7 says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, We could have had a fifth category here. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. In the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanseth us from all sin. It's our job to be the light to the world, isn't it? And so that's us individually. Letter C is us collectively, the church. It's our job as the church, as the local assembly of believers, to shine lights, shine his light to this world. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is is one of the letters to the seven churches. And this one's to the, the church at Ephesus. It says, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Here's those candlesticks again. Later on in this passage, he explains that those candlesticks represent churches. They represent a local church. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience. And for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Man, there's a serious warning to us as a body of believers. You individually need to be shining the light to this world. We as a church need to make sure that we hold fast to our first love, Jesus Christ and the word of God. 
We have to hold on to that. That is our responsibility as a church. And he says if we don't do it, the light's going to go out. You're not going to shine to anybody. We can't be that church. Ephesians 5.8 says, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now we can apply that to ourselves individually for sure, but he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. It applies to both. All right, so those are the three other pictures. Those are important. I couldn't just skip over those. And it doesn't leave us a ton of time here for the, the comforter, letter D. So we've seen Christ, we've seen the Christian, we've seen the church, and letter D is the comforter. Because we had to go with C words. And God uses that word, so it's okay. He uses it in John chapter 14, verse 26. He says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So Jesus, the word of God, is talking about the job of the comforter to teach and to bring into remembrance what? The words of God. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word of God. Isn't it interesting that you walk into this dark place, there's a table of bread off to the right. You can't see the table of bread, which, good Bible students, what does bread represent? The word of God. You can't see the word of God unless the Spirit illuminates it to you. You can't even find the table without hitting your big toe on that thing. The Spirit of God has to illuminate his word. It's the comforter's job to teach. You don't learn anything on your own. It just doesn't happen. John 15, 26 says, But when the Comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. You understand that the Spirit of God is always, always, always going to agree 100% with the Word of God. He's not ever going to disagree. He's not ever going to give you something brand new that the Word of God has not already established as truth. It's not going to happen. He's all about shining light on the Word of God. Acts 10, 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, here's this anointing again. In the Old Testament, the anointing was with oil. You were announced as somebody with some big mission because you were anointed with oil by the priests or by a prophet. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power. When you see oil in the Old Testament, and when you see oil throughout Scripture, think, I wonder what that has to do with the Spirit. Because most of the time it has something to do to picture the Spirit of God and how He functions. It says He went about doing good, healing. Or he said He's anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power. Right? This is, this is where the power comes in. The power comes through the, the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned in power of the Spirit. Romans 1, 4, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. Romans 15, 19, through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. What in the world are these signs and wonders that Paul was talking about? Why did he need signs and wonders? What were the purpose of those? They came from the Spirit of God, and their purpose has always been to illuminate truth. Paul was speaking brand new 
revelation at the time. He needed somebody to shine light on that and say, hey, that is the word of God. And now we have it. So we don't need miracles and signs and wonders to confirm that that is the word of God. We know it's the word of God. Now you need the Spirit to teach you the truth individually. We know that it's God's truth. The Spirit already shined on it. The Spirit already lit that up for everyone to see. And he says, for I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. They would have missed it without the signs and wonders confirming that this was for sure absolutely the holy words of God. They would have missed it without the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.4, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in contrast, right, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He, just contra- he contrasted man's wisdom with the Spirit of God and power. We think we know a lot. We think we've got it figured out. Verse 14 of the same chapter, he says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You don't learn it unless he lights it. It doesn't come unless you go the way that God tells you to go. You don't have power without him. 2 Timothy's a cool verse, chapter 1, verse 7 says, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You struggle having a sound mind. You struggle with thoughts that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. You need the Spirit of God to illuminate the Word of God so that you can agree with it and start walking according to it. So He can give you a sound mind. In conclusion, we'll wrap up just a couple more verses here. It says, entering into the tabernacle, the holy places, it's all about a meaningful relationship. The next two things we're going to see, that the table of showbread is all about the word of God. The altar of incense is all about prayer. What do those have to do with? Your relationship with God. You don't have a relationship if you don't communicate. That's what we're going to see next week. It's powered by the Holy Spirit. We can't settle for the outer court because Christ didn't die for you so that you can just be saved and wander around in this world getting dirty all the time. He did not save you so that you could get your free ticket out of hell and just live for your flesh and fulfill your flesh with whatever desires you want the rest of your life and not have to worry about suffering the ultimate consequence for that. He didn't die for that. He died so that you would know him personally, so that you would grow, so that you would mature. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Wherefore, seeing we are, we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us. Don't you realize that you're stuck outside of the holy place? You're sinning. You're washing it away. You're sinning. You're washing it away. You're sinning. You're washing it away. You're walking around in the dirt of this world. You're getting the filth on it. You're washing it away. I read my Bible. Yeah, I read my Bible. And you're in a cycle. And you've never stepped foot into the holy place. Maybe not for a long time. You're just washing the filth that you can't get your eyes off of. 
away over and over and over again. And he says, why won't you come in here and spend time with me? I was just washing. He says, let us run the race with patience, or with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How do I stop this cycle? Where are you looking? He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our, of our faith. Why don't we look at this tabernacle where every detail says Jesus? This is all about Jesus. This thing looks like Jesus. Why are we looking at the world? Why don't we turn around and look at where he's at? What are we pursuing? He says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wash yourselves and stop looking at and longing for the world and what it has to offer, and look at Jesus. What are we doing? Romans 7. Sometimes this is a comfort, sometimes it freaks me out. Chapter, eight, or chapter 7, verses 18 through 25, it says, For I know, this is Paul talking, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Me too, Paul. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I'm, I'm a mess. I find then a law that when I do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Have you ever said what Paul says here? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who's going to get me out of this cycle? Why can't I get past this dirty old outer court when he wants a relationship with me and all I ever do is just get dirty and, and, and try to get clean and get dirty again? He says, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Period. Turn around. Quit looking at the world. Look at Jesus. Walk with him. Wash yourself off and turn away from those things. Don't be satisfied with just being saved. Pursue a deep and meaningful relationship. That's what he's waiting for. That's what he's always been waiting for. What are you waiting for? Let's pray. Lord, I'm so humbled that, that you do want that relationship. I look at myself and I, I don't know why. And it's just an incredible display of your love and, and your patience. Your desire to know me intimately. It, it, it boggles my mind and I'm, I'm so grateful for it. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we're looking at the details of the tabernacle and, and your spirit and how you function in us. and Lord, I pray that you would pull on our hearts to just step inside. That we would long to have a personal relationship that matters, that changes us, that, 
that's something we wake up longing for each day. That we'd stop making excuses. We'd stop blaming others. That we would just look at you and start walking the way you would have us walk and start seeking for you to, to shine your light on your truth so we can not just wash this world off, but, but dine with you, commune with you. Lord, I love you. I'm, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that you reveal these things to us and that you haven't given up on us and you continue to speak. Lord, I pray that this song would be pleasing to your ears and challenging to our hearts. We love you and uh, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.